Uh, we are going to turn to God's Word, and you might like to turn to page 1008 for our Bible reading this morning. As you know, over the last number of weeks, we've been looking at John the Baptist, and uh, today Mark is going to read to us from chapter 6 of the Gospel that bears his name. So the reading is from uh, Mark chapter 6, and we're starting at verse 17 on page 1008 uh, in the Pew Bibles. For Herod himself had given orders to have John arrested, and he had had him bound and put in prison. He did this because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, whom he had married. For John had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. So Herodias nursed a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. But she was not able to because Herod feared John and protected him, knowing him to be a righteous and holy man. When Herod heard John, he was greatly puzzled, yet he liked to listen to him. Finally, the opportune time came. On his birthday, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. When the daughter of Herodias came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. The king said to the girl, ask me for anything you want and I'll give it to you. And he promised her with an oath, whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. She went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? The head of John the Baptist, she answered. At once the girl hurried into the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist on a platter. The king was greatly distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he did not want to refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner with orders to bring John's head. The man went, beheaded John in the prison, and brought back his head on a platter. He presented it to the girl, and she gave it to her mother. On hearing of this, John's disciples came and took his body and laid it in a tomb. Amen. I wonder why the writer Mark includes this gruesome story of John the Baptist's execution by Herod at a dinner party for the rich and famous. Why does he include it in his gospel? If we were to read this in its context, we would see that this event in Mark chapter 6 is sandwiched between the disciples of Jesus preaching that people should repent and they were driving out many demons and anointing people who were sick with oil and healing them. It's sandwiched between that and chapter 6, verse 30, where Jesus feeds 5,000 people. So unlike Herod, who was notionally the king of the Jews, here is Jesus, the true king, who had command over all of his creation and providing generous and good hospitality at a feast for the common people. But it's more than that. 
even as John the Baptist has spent his life pointing forward to the coming of the King, behold the Lamb of God, so now in his silent and unjust death, John points forward to the time, chapter 6, verse 29, when Jesus' disciples would also take Jesus' body and lay it in a tomb. But even more than that, Mark is writing to Christians experiencing the persecution of the Roman authorities. And so to them, and to us by extension, he is making it perfectly plain that there is a cost if we are to follow Jesus. There's a very real cost to discipleship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, King Herod liked to listen to John preach, but it made no actual difference to the choices he made and the way he lived. Please, Lord, will you grant us the Holy Spirit who alone can transform our hearing into godly practice. And what we pray is for Jesus' sake. Amen. So here in Mark chapter 6, we encounter King Herod. It's perhaps worth clarifying that there were actually four Herods mentioned in the Gospels. Uh, Herod was the family name of the dynasty of rulers that governed Judea during the time of Christ. There was Herod the Great, uh, great not because he was nice, but because he was a master builder. And you may remember Herod the Great was the one who tried to trick the wise men in the Christmas story, who killed the babies at Bethlehem, not to mention some of his own family. Then there is Herod Archelaus, who was one of Herod the Great's sons. He was in charge when Joseph was unwilling to move Mary and his toddler back home to Nazareth, so they had to move temporarily to Egypt. Then there was Herod the Tetrarch, who went on to marry his niece, Salome, the daughter of Herodias. And there is the one mentioned here in Mark chapter 6, Herod Antipas, who Jesus once called that fox. Herod Antipas was the King Pontius Pilate sent Jesus to see as part of his trial. And this is the one who divorced his first wife in order to marry Herodias, the wife of one of his brothers. Four Herods, um, but they all shared one thing in common. They were all bad news. Not least Herod Antipas, we have read about here in verse 17, who gave the orders himself to have John arrested and bound and put in prison and ultimately, verse 16, beheaded. Now, the reason why Herod had done these things is highlighted in verse 18. John the baptizer had been saying to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. And so Herodias, that is the woman he married, nursed a grudge against the bold prophet Herod uh, wanted to portray himself as the king of the Jews, 
But John, whose job it was to be conscious of the nations, let him know in no, in no uncertain terms that adultery and divorce was not the appropriate behavior for the king of the Jews. And so, verse 20, Herod feared John. That's intriguing. You would have thought that it was John who might have feared Herod, for after all, it was Herod who had the power over his life. But not so. It was Herod the adulterer who feared John because he was a righteous and holy man. Do you find that compelling? It was Robert Murray McShane, the 19th century Scottish preacher, uh, who astutely observed a holy minister is an awful weapon in the hand of God. And so he is. For while Herod might have lavishly flaunted his power, John quietly exercised it through the strength of integrity. Well, now we're going to look at what happened at Herod's birthday party and then hopefully draw out some application from the text for two specific groups of people this morning, parents and teenagers. On his birthday, verse 21, Herod gave a banquet for his high officials and military commanders. And as you know, there's no such a thing as a free lunch, and Herod was ingratiating himself with his key personnel. And while John the Nazarite, who had never touched strong drink in his life, was languishing in the dungeon of the fortress Macarius, that is beside the Dead Sea, Upstairs, there was no shortage of alcohol. And as you know, where there is drink, inhibition goes out the window. And so when Salome, Herod's stepdaughter, came in and danced, verse 22, Herod was delighted. And so was his entourage. Ask me anything that you want, and I'll give it to you up to half of my kingdom the inebriated hybrid monarch boasted as if he were some sort of oriental potentate. And so Salome went out and asked her sweet mum Herodias what it was that she should ask for. A string of pearls? A ticket to the next Strictly Come Dancing edition? Perhaps a holiday to Rome? Not a bit. The head of John the Baptist. And at once, we read in verse 25, the girl hurried to the king with the request, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist in a platter. And at that, verse 26, the king, we are told, was distressed. He sobered up. But it was too late. And because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he didn't want to lose face and immediately sent an executioner with the orders to bring John's head. Can you imagine? On the 12th of February, 2015, so-called Islamic State kidnapped and beheaded 21 Egyptian Coptic Christian construction workers in Libya with these words, people of the cross, followers of the hostile Egyptian church. 
I had the privilege of meeting the leader of the Coptic Church last May on his visit to Dublin in order to express the solidarity of the Presbyterian Church in Ireland with his people persecuted in this way. And through subsequent suicide bombings at St. Mark's in Cairo at Easter and in another church at Tantra hours later, killing 71 people in total. And then the murder of 28 more Coptic Christians on a bus south of Cairo a very short time later. Listen, my friends. Herod may have started beheading. But what happened to John the Baptist at this fortress in the east of the Dead Sea is not ancient history. His martyrdom is a very present experience for countless believers throughout our world today. Now, what is the application of this text for us? Quite apart from the obvious intercessions, which we take very seriously and make regularly at our congregational prayer times, let me tell you a story. Last week, I was talking with a minister from another presbytery who told me that one of his most faithful families had just informed him that they wouldn't be coming so often to church from now on because their girls aged four and six had been offered tuition at a gymnastics class on Sunday morning. Now, I don't know if those parents were pandering to the desires of their children or projecting onto their children their own unrequited ambitions. But either way, they were making a devastating choice, which may well lead their girls to a lost eternity. I don't know what Herodias' ambitions for her daughter Salome were, but it certainly wasn't that she live a holy life. But each parent here, and especially those who have promised at their children's baptism to bring their children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, have an inordinate privilege, and with that a special responsibility to enable their children to make godly choices early in their lives so that by prayer and example, it will become easy for them to have a regular pattern later in life. I'm always hesitant to do this, but, but let me try to illustrate what I'm trying to say from our own faltering experience. There was a time when our two children were small, when we were living in Dublin, and they were receiving a lot of birthday party invitations for Sundays, generally at half past 12 or 1 o'clock. Now, every parent wants their children to make friends, don't they? No parent wants to deprive their children of opportunities. But on a Sunday, God's day, a day of rest and worship. Well, Claire and I had a choice, three choices, actually. One, simply to let them go and not make a fuss over it. Secondly, to forbid them from going. Or thirdly, to see this as an opportunity for exercising Christian leadership within the home. 
and training our children in godliness. And so we called them together for a family conference around the kitchen table. I, I think Robert once told me he hated family conferences. <laughs> but anyway, there we gathered around, and Claire and I explained the presenting issue. And then we asked this question, what should we as a Christian family choose to do? Not what should Christian parents, parents impose upon their resentful, non-believing children, but what should we, as a corporate, covenantal, believing home, do? We talked about the kindness of the invitation issued. We talked about the dates and the times. We talked about Sunday, not only as a day that is different from every other day, because it's the day set apart for worship, but because it is a change of rhythm from the relentless toing and froing in the car as a taxi service, and how Sunday was a unique opportunity for hospitality when we as a family were able to offer students and others uh, uh, a welcome to our home over a relaxed lunch. And together, together we came to agreement that while appreciative of those Sunday invitations, we would decline them and arrange another time for the children to get together for fun activities. And with that actually came calm and equilibrium and a sense of collective responsibility. Christian parents are not like unbelieving or secular parents with a worldview that excludes God. We have a special privilege, a beautiful responsibility to help build a framework for our covenant children to grow up within a believing home, making wise and good and holy choices, and making it plain that from the earliest days there is a cost in being a disciple of Jesus. And if we shrink that responsibility of leadership now, then please don't blame God if at a later stage our children go off the rails or show little interest in spiritual things. That's application number one. Parents, teach the cost of discipleship. I wonder if you noticed, by the way, as I did when Mark read the text, just how foolish Herod was making this outrageous promise to his stepdaughter. Every parent wants to be liked by their children and so tend to want to spoil them, to be generous. But did you note what that spoiling produced in Salome's character? Do you see verse 25? Having sought her mother's godless advice, we read, she hurried into the king's presence. Whoever hurries into the presence of the king and said, I want you to give me right now the head of John the Baptist and a platter. Is that not horrendous? Here is a girl, not just spoilt, but beyond any normal constraints. Any wonder 
And so the second application this morning is for our godly teenagers. Now, can I just say how much we as a church family value you? Bloomfield Presbyterian Church wants to bless you, and that is why we pray for and acknowledge the huge amount of work that your leaders give. We want to acknowledge all that goes into your spiritual nurturing and care within this fellowship, because we want you to grow up as godly women and men in a world that despises godliness, and with it despises women and men as well. And so, the second application this morning is pertaining to the choices that you make. We've already talked to mums and dads because Christian parents have great responsibility for your growth in grace and knowledge and love of God. But that does not negate the choices you must also make at school and at home and when you go away to university or enter the workplace. What do I mean? Well, throughout your life, you will feel under pressure. Some of that pressure will be unavoidable. On Friday night at the Boys' Brigade dinner, reference was made to lads 90 years ago having to go out to work at the age of 14. That was pressure. So it's impossible not to experience pressure growing up. That is inevitable. But there is specific pressure which you as a Christian young man or woman will have to face, and at times that will seem almost intolerable. The pressure to conform to the norms of secular society, the pressure to do the sorts of things that everybody else is doing that are wrong. And what I say to you is this, we can do what we can to help and encourage you. That is why we invest so heavily in our youth ministry and why we are so thankful to have the godly leadership and example of Reuben as our youth worker. But there will be times, lads and girls, where you will be put into really difficult situations and you will have to decide if it is popularity or Christ who comes first. Now, I don't say this lightly, but there is a cost in following Jesus. It's not persecution, but it's still hard. There are privileges beyond measure in being a disciple, but there is also a cost, and you need to know that. If Salome had been a girl within whom God's Holy Spirit dwelt, I doubt, verse 22, if she would have agreed to dance in front of her gawking stepdad and his cronies. We're not talking strictly here, we're talking dirty dancing. To have said no to Herod would have cost. And if Salome had been a follower of the Lord Jesus, I doubt, verse 25, I doubt very much indeed if she would have agreed to pass on the macabre request of her godless mother to the king, let alone present to her the decapitated head of the godly John on a plate. There are times when Christian young men may have to say no 
to the godless demands of their family. There are times when godly young women will have to say no to the lusts and the outrageous demands of their friends and peers. But you know something? You are loved. Many of you are hugely loved by your family. You are loved and you are prayed for by your church family. And all of you are loved beyond words by the Lord Jesus, who, like John before him, did not hesitate but laid down his life, the innocent for the guilty, the pure for the impure. But who, unlike John, verse 29, when laid in the tomb, Christ Jesus did not remain there but was raised from the dead and granted the Holy Spirit to enable all of us to have the strength to live for him. And yes, if necessary, to die for him. Last Thursday night, the women of our church had the enormous honor of hearing Dr. Patricia Morton speak uh, at PW. Pat was a close friend of the late Dr. Helen Rosevere, and Helen Rosevere spent 20 incredible years of her life as a missionary doctor in the Belgian Congo, experiencing the most outrageous joys and horrors, including being brutalized and nearly losing her life. And asked towards the end of her life if following Jesus had been worth it, her answer was yes, yes, a million times yes. All of it, she said, was a privilege. There's a cost to discipleship. But Jesus has never asked of us what he will not also enable us to do, granting joy and an eternal dimension. Our gracious Lord, King Herod, loved to listen to John preach, but it never actually made any difference to the choices he made or the way he lived. Please, Lord, as you speak to us through your word, enable us also to live lives that are clean and pure and honoring to our Savior, in whose glorious name we pray. Amen. And we pray. We thank you, Lord, for the example that John the Baptizer gives to us all. For how he risked life and limb for the sake of righteousness and how he was killed at the hand of a weak man and through the vindictiveness of a cruel woman. We pray for all 
who take their stand and face similar risks. For Christians, and this morning we were reminded of Coptic Christians, for them and for many others from different branches of your church, persecuted for their faith and for good people of goodwill, also suffering for what is right. We think of those who did not know that they were risking their lives for the families of the 58 who were shot in Las Vegas last week and for the 489 injured there for the tens of thousands killed each year by handguns in the United States. We pray for those who take risks in their daily work, for aid workers in dangerous places, for those working with very troubled and vulnerable people, for prison officers and police. We thank you, Lord, for how John pointed to Jesus and pray for all who do the same today. For all who stood in our service this morning and for the ministries they, we, carry out. For those who show the grace of the Lord Jesus on the shop floor, in the office, on the dole, at home, at school, at play. For students away from home the first time ever, for pensioners who think they're past having any use to anybody. And for our own families. We pray for those we support in their Christian work, for Helen in Japan, James and Heather in Portugal, Simone in Nepal, for our brothers and sisters in Rwanda, Dr. Benini and his church and family, and for those who work at home, for Russell and Brian and Eddie and others, for Sheila, soon to visit Nigeria and encourage her Christian family there. We pray for our parents and for our teenagers facing the challenges and decisions which you enabled Frank to highlight this morning. We pray for those who are bearing heavy burdens. For parents distressed that a child is in great difficulties and that child can be five or 45. And we bring all who are on our hearts. Father, 
Father of all mercies and God of all compassion, help us to look only unto Jesus. And whatever our circumstances, may we rejoice in your wonderful provision. And to the name of Jesus be all the glory. Amen.